both political sides have dug into an ideological position that inhibits real change. Progressives refuse to accept that important gender inequalities can run in both directions and quickly label male problems as symptoms of toxic masculinity. Conservatives appear more sensitive to the struggles of boys and men, but only as a justification for turning the clock back and restoring traditional gender roles. The left tells men, be more like your sister. The right says, be more like your father. Neither invocation is helpful. What is needed is a positive vision of masculinity that is compatible with gender equality. To the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend Brad Stolberg. Brad, how's it going, my man? Things are going really well over here, Steve. It's a beautiful spring day. Um, looking forward to today's conversation on a topic that I think is really important and um, pretty challenging to discuss because it is just so complex and culturally charged. But we're going to wade in and, and do the best that we can. Because like I said, I think it's a real crucial topic for our times. And um, we want to have this conversation for each other and for our audience. Yes, we're going to wade into the controversial, something that unfortunately I'm used to, to a degree, thanks to a past life in track and running. Um, but you know, Brad, before we get into that, which I'm really looking forward to, and I think it's necessary, and then we're going to try and do with kind of, a, you know, nuance here, is one of the ways, one of the reasons we can kind of wade into these topics and give nuanced opinions is because we're, we sponsor ourselves, right? We don't want supplement companies telling us what we can tell you tell you guys about that works or doesn't work. We don't want some fancy tracking thing to you know, bias or blind us into telling you the truth about what trackers can measure and when they're good and when they're bad. We don't want someone else to just tell us, hey, these topics just stay, stay away from them because they're controversial. So because of that, we sponsor ourselves. We have a Patreon where you can get all sorts of awesome stuff, including our upcoming next book, which is, you know, a couple months away. So get on board. Um, you can see it at patreon.com slash the growth equation. And if you want to support us in another way, get a copy of our books, latest books, mine, do hard things, Brad's, the practice of groundedness that all helps us. So let's dive into today's topic. So today we are going to be talking about the state of men in America, though it's really a, a mirror pretty much anywhere you look in the Western world. And we're going to be having a discussion that is built on the chassis of a book called Of Boys and Men by Richard Reeves. Steve and I both read it. We both think it is one of the most mind-blowing books of the last couple of years, uh, simply because it tees up a problem that is being overlooked by different people for different reasons. And the reason that it's being overlooked by me and perhaps to some extent, Steve, is for better and for worse, we live in a little bit of a bubble. 
in the very top of the professional world. So high-level, white-collar jobs, authors, athletes, men are doing great. And there are still many disadvantages that impact women at that level. The glass ceiling is still somewhat real. And there is all kinds of gender bias at the top of the economy. However, when you look at the bottom three quarters, four fifths, some would argue seven eighths of the economy, men are facing a pretty stark disadvantage. And it's something that a lot of people that sit in executive suites, they don't really notice. Um, It's also something that isn't talked about because for, oh, I don't know, the last forever up until two decades ago, uh, women were facing all sorts of disadvantages across societies. And there was so much gender stereotype against women. And by no means is the conversation we're about to have a, we should just go back to how things were in the 70s and 60s. Um, But two wrongs don't make a right. And it's wonderful that there is so much more gender equality, um, but it's not wonderful that men are falling behind in in so many key areas. And um, I think that having angry, young, disenfranchised men throughout the course of history has just led to bad things. And if we don't have responsible conversations about this topic, then irresponsible figures are going to come and, and fill that void. So before we dive in, I just want to name a couple of stats that I found extremely striking. So the first is on the crazy inequality at the university and collegiate level of education. The enrollment gap in undergraduate school right now is 17%. 17% more women enroll in undergraduate programs throughout the United States than men. The graduation gap is 33%. 33% more women graduate from university or college than men. In K-12, through boys are 50% more likely than girls to fail at math, reading, and science in any given grade. 50% more likely that boys fail. Deaths of despair. These are categorized as deaths caused by substance abuse or suicide. Three quarters, three out of every four deaths of despair, is a death of a man. And for all the talk on the left that I know I've partaken in at times using the phrase people of color to describe a large swath of non-white individuals, black men fare significantly worse on just about every measure of health and financial autonomy. So it is worth calling out that there is gendered racism that affects black men, particularly in the workplace and in the criminal justice system. And we can't just ignore these problems because they're not comfortable to talk about. I'll give one more fascinating stat before we dive into the conversation. In my home state of Michigan, there's this wonderful program called the Kalamazoo Promise. And a rich anonymous donor a long time ago said that anyone that lives in Kalamazoo and goes to Kalamazoo public schools gets free in-state tuition to any college in the whole state. This includes the University of Michigan, Northern Michigan. Um, we have a couple great technical institutes. I have to say Michigan State. It's a fine school. I just went to Michigan, so I cringe when I say it. But really good public schools, totally free. And the Kalamazoo Promise is hailed as this enormous success because so many people from Kalamazoo 
go to college more than many other school districts. However, when you control for gender and you just look at men, the Kalamazoo promise has zero effect. Zero effect. So clearly, something has changed. And again, the answer here, and I'm being super explicit, is not to go back to how things were, where women were relegated across the board in society, and therefore these problems were kind of hidden from view. It is wonderful that women have rose up. Now the question is, how do we bring men back up to a place where they too can thrive? Because I think everyone can agree that it is not good for the health or productivity of society to have half of its citizens struggling and have so much gender inequality in a direction that we're just not accustomed to talking about. And I think that last piece that you said is the key there, is that we're not accustomed to talking about. And I think one of the reasons that this problem, which, the again, I would suggest anyone to either go back, listen to what the problems Brad outlined the data, or if you want a deep dive, go check out Richard Reed's book, A Boys and Men. Or there's several other books in the same kind of genre that have come out in the last decade that have been warning us of this. Um, and it is a real problem, but I think the reason, one of the reasons that we haven't got to it or haven't addressed it is because <laughs> societally we like simple narratives. And the simple true narrative for a long time was that men had power, you know, status, dynamics, advantage. And that was true and is true, as you pointed out, in a still, you know, uh, part of the, the socioeconomic status uh, part of society. Um, but what happened is that made it where we couldn't talk about uh, the the issue is as you know these problems have surfaced because it goes against our kind of simple narrative that men were in power and control and therefore they had the advantage so any sort of disadvantage that they might face is kind of a blip on the radar or something that is just simply har- harming the cause and i think the reason for that is because we like simple, straightforward narratives. And here I'm going to go to sports, for example, here, because that's what I do. But I think this serves it well. For a very long time, women were underrepresented, especially in collegiate sports. And what we did is we passed Title IX that allowed for mandating increased opportunities. And it's been a huge success. But one of the things that has happened in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years that doesn't get talked about as much because we like our simple narratives is that we've partially raised women opportunities, not by raising both or raising all tides, but by cutting back opportunities to make it it, on the men's side to make it even. And I I just want to pull out a couple stats before I explain why this kind of gets at the bigger thing is if you look at the top 10 college programs in terms of or college sports that have been cut over the last, I think it was 25 years, nine out of 10 of those are men's sports. So men's tennis, 21% less teams, men's wrestling, 17% less teams, men's swimming, 16% less teams. The only women's sport that has been, you know, in that top 10 of, of sports being cut is women's gymnastics. And 
The reason I point this out is I think this gets to what we think societally in our master narrative, which we see it as a competition between men and women instead of a both and and seeing how we can. It's almost like we've we've framed this as a zero sum game where, you know, if one group succeeds, the other goes back a little bit instead of talking about how do we get all groups to succeed or all groups to increase their opportunity. And I think that has, you know, put us in in the spot we're, we're in right now. And the one other thing that I'd, I'd point on here is that, and you hinted at this, but the reason that I think it's important to get over the kind of stigma around talking about it is, is if we don't, that gap is filled by the Andrew Tates of the world. Or, you know, and maybe a slightly different way, the Jordan Petersons of the world. Because someone's going to talk about it. And when we have when you feel when you have maybe middle or lower socioeconomic status people, uh, men feeling like, hey, I'm not getting my fair share or shake, or like I can't move up, or I have no status or significance in this world, or what have you, or um they're going to look for someone who's giving them the answer. And if the only people giving them an answer or listening are people giving them shitty answers, they're still going to listen to that. Those people. Yeah. There's this, um, there's this, this beautiful, well, beautiful is the wrong word here, but beautifully communicated, um, point that Richard Reeves, who's been studying this issue makes, which is he's gone and he's talked to disenfranchised men, um, who love the Andrew Tates and Jordan Petersons and Donald Trump's of the world. And, um, he's, he's asked them and he says, well, it's because they care about us as men. No one else cares about us. And then Richard Reeves says, what are you talking about? Like, we, of course we care about men. And they say, no, like there's, you know, men, men just don't exist. Just, just look at, look at the CDC's guidance on COVID. And, Richard Reeves goes to the website and he's expecting, you know, the next thing's going to be some vaccine conspiracy that this person brings up. But what this person says is they've got documents and documents and programs and programs on how COVID has disproportionately affected women because women are often in the double bind of needing to work and then be the primary parent, which is 100% true. And that is something that happened with COVID for sure. So the problem isn't that that document exists. The problem is that there's nothing, nothing on the unique challenges with COVID in men when COVID kills over twice as many men as women. So just imagine if that was the other way around, if COVID killed twice as many women as men. You'd have to think that would be a national conversation. There would be advocacy groups. There would certainly be statements by all the public health institutions, and it's like it does not exist. So I want to be clear. I can completely understand if you, the listener, are having the response of women have had it in the shitter for the last millennia, two millennia since recorded history, and now finally like men start to suffer a little bit, and, and these guys want us to take it seriously and care about it. Give me a break. That was maybe my gestalt response when I started reading Richard Reeves' book. But I don't think it's a very mature response because two wrongs don't make a right. And to just say that, oh, because one group had it bad, therefore we should completely ignore the other group, 
also isn't a very mature thing that's like very kindergarten-esque. And again, this was my gestalt, so I get it. And then number three, even if you don't care about points one and two that I just made, I want to come back to this because it's so important. Throughout history, when men have felt disenfranchised and like they don't belong and they're not cared for, even when that's not true, this is maybe the first time in history that it's really true, even when it's not true, the result tends to be they attach themselves to strongman demagogue fascist leaders in movements. Eric Hoffer won a presidential prize in the 1950s for a phenomenal book called The True Believer. It's on this very topic. Um, Nazism took a lot of men that felt like they were just going through the motions in Germany and turned them into Nazis. So this is a real crisis that has the potential to, to really be terrible for society. So my hope is that both of these points resonate, and it's out of the goodness of your heart that you don't think that we should just let half the people in in the country kind of go through this huge decline without talking about it and trying to make it better. But even if you feel like, well, now it's your turn, well, what comes around goes around in this vein, and and it's not very good. Um, There's another thing that makes this hard to talk about that I think is worth laying out, Steve. And because it is such a... um, a polarizing, controversial topic. I'm just going to paraphrase Richard Reeves here. So if y'all don't like what I have to say, you can take it up with him. The left currently, the political left, the cultural left, has a tendency to minimize the role of biology and sex differences in society. That leads the right to react by way overstating the role of biology and sex differences in society, which then leads the left to double down on their position that biology and sex doesn't matter, which then leads the right to escalate. And we get caught up in this vicious cycle of absolute nonsense. So before I turn it over to Steve, because he has a little bit more knowledge on this, given his history in elite sport, I want to frame something up philosophically that I think is so important. There can be averages between groups with overlapping bell curves. On average, men can have more muscle mass and more testosterone than women. However, there can be an individual level cases where women have more muscle mass than men. On average, women can be better fit for what we call the caring professions, for teaching, for nursing. However, at the individual level, men can be much better fits for those professions. So we have to be able to hold these two ideas at the same time. There can be average differences between groups that inform policymaking, but that should not determine how we treat individuals. And what we'll get into in a bit is since the pendulum has swung over the last 40 years, many great things have happened on the women's side to treat women not as averages, but individuals. As a result, we've seen an enormous rise of women in the so-called STEM pursuits, science, technology, engineering, and math. I'd have to double check, but I believe it's up to like 34 to 36% of young people are now pursuing STEM are women, down from like 10% two decades ago. Steve, guess what percentage of kindergarten teachers are men? A very low percent. Two. Two percent. 
Guess what percentage of nurses are men? 11%. So on average, men's biology that informs their psychology, the way that their brains are wired, they might not be. We might never have K through five teaching parity because on average there are these gaps, but more than two out of every 100 men are probably a great fit for a teacher of young kids, yet they don't go into teaching professions. Yet there's no big program to get more men involved in teaching. Which is a big problem. So uh, a couple different things that I want to talk about there. First, let's go towards the biology versus like culture thing that you you outlined there between the right and left. I just want to zoom back out a little bit because I think the average first individual is a great example. Uh, I mean, where I go again is sports. And the way I like to think of it is like on an individual level, my wife is much faster than Brad. But no matter how much she trained and she was, you know, elite level runner, no matter how much she trained, she's not getting with it, not beating, you know, the best men because there's overlap on the individual level. But again, on average, men are going to be faster. And at the elite level, what that that translates into is a about a 10% gap between the, the best men and the best women that is essentially insurmountable. And I, I wrote a piece on the Atlantic for this um, that essentially when it was talking about the gender gap in sports, because it's been argued in with, with um, the, the debate over trans athletes and stuff, uh, what we should do. And my simple take was essentially, hey, let's acknowledge the reality that this gap exists at the top of the top um, in performance. And Brad knows this, but I can't tell you how much random backlash I got from this article. Um, And all I was saying is essentially, hey, let's acknowledge this reality that science clearly shows. I didn't say, hey, this means X, Y, and Z for policies or whatever have you. Let's just acknowledge that. And I think on on that end, it gets to why this topic is really hard to talk about. Because like even something as simple as like there are distinct advantages at the top of the top, things that are driven by biological differences, we can't just say, okay, yeah, that's true. Let's accept this and deal with the messiness of the problem in reality we face. And then on the opposite side, as you said, Brad, I think the other part is we, you know, the other side gets deterministic on biology um, to the extreme and believes that these biological differences drive all behavior, which we obviously, you know, know isn't true. So I want to lay that out is that as you you put there, Brad, is like what we've done is we've been driven to either extremes with nowhere in the middle and no discussion in the middle, primarily because we group ourselves or attach ourselves to the groups we think we belong to. So if you're conservative or Republican or liberal and Democrat, you see this extreme, you see this view, let's take it in sports, and you attach onto it, not because maybe you kind of realize, hey, this is what I think or whatever, but you attach onto that because like your identity is wrapped around that group. And we have lots of research that shows that, again, our, our kind of beliefs and views go where our group identities are for better or worse. And I think that, since politics is so charged, it prevents us from kind of um, kind of wrestling with that nuance in the middle. And, and then I the, think, oh, go, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to, well, go ahead. You finish your point here. 
So the other part, of, well, I'm going to move points. So you hit hit this and then I'll come back to it. Okay. Well, just on, on biology, um, in biology mattering, I think that, again, we can accept that biology plays a role in certain things without saying that it is the same for everyone and that it's the only role. But you can't have your cake and eat it too just to align with your political beliefs. So here's a striking example. Sometimes I am questioned by people that I really, really respect and like for how come I include my pronouns in a lot of things. And these are people that are in good faith. And I tell them because we refer to people based on their pronouns and I want to be real sensitive to transgender people that are mispronounced all the time. And they say, oh, you're not just virtue signaling? And I say, well, no, like it, it's pretty widely accepted that between half a percent and 1% of people are transgender. So in a room of 500 people, there's between two and five people that are likely to be transgender. And we know this because of biology and science. And then I asked that person, if that person's a male, Steve, how would you like it if someone forced you to grow breasts and to wear a skirt and high heels? How, how would that make you feel? I mean, not great because I don't identify. Right. You'd feel terrible. So that's, that's the experience of a transgender person, right? It's fucking terrible. And that's why I do think that it matters that for the half a percent to 1%, we acknowledge that. And everybody on the left is going to agree with me. And clearly there's a biological basis for that. However, if you say that there's a biological basis for difference in sport performance or muscle mass or even something like um, doing highly physical pursuits versus more emotional pursuits, they'll say, oh, no, 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 no. This is just like something that a white male says because they have no idea. So biology isn't destiny, but you can't pick and choose when you are going to accept the role that biology has real determinants. Um, and I think what's happened on the left, and it's likely the, the side that you and I are the side, the political party that we both identify more closely with, so maybe we have an easier time trashing it here, is there's like a game of, oh, we'll use biology if it suits us. So we'll gladly parade the study that says that women are much better in emotionally charged situations and much calmer leaders. But the same study with the same or the, the same group of researchers with the same methods that has a study that shows that perhaps men are better at certain components of engineering, that's sexist. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. And the reason I, I feel strongly about like making this point is because then the gap gets filled by batshit crazy people on the right that come in and say a woman's place is in the home. And if a woman's pregnant, she has to have the kid and all this stuff that I just don't agree with. But if you're just like random person in the middle, you're going to throw your hands up and be like, so what? So I do think like there's sanity that needs to be called for on both sides to address this very real issue. Yes. And I'm just going to put the other hat on the other side, just so it's represented. And, and, and I've had people, you know, actually from the, you know, one, both political sides, you know, DM me on, on Twitter, Instagram, all that say and say, Hey, I, for example, the hot button topic of trans people is like, hey, I believe that trans, 
people should be able to identify however they want and like, you know, support them in the society. But I also like, I have a hard time supporting or, um, at the elite level without, you know, um, any sort of, uh, testosterone rule or something like that, that they compete. And I think that gets at how we wrestle with like our group kind of identity with kind of our individual, understanding of maybe what the science or research shows or shows us or, or demonstrates us. And I think that's why, again, kind of zooming back out and bringing to this topic of, of why with men struggling and why it's hard to talk about it is because it lands in this messy middle between biology and social cultural aspects. And we like to go to either extreme of those and it's uncomfortable to dealing with the the yes and. And the other point I wanted to make on something that you talked about there with the teachers and kindergarten and all that stuff is what's very interesting here is, again, if we look at, well, why does this matter? Well, there's some research on on male teachers and then even more research on, on race and teachers and how that impacts academic performance. Um but there's some research that shows that, you know, young boys, men, elementary school, junior high, like typically do a little bit better if they've had at least like one male teacher along the way. Significantly and, better. I'm going to I'm going to correct you there. It's well, it, it can be better by like a factor of 15 to 20 percent. It can. I just don't want to overstate it because I've looked at this research. The The effect on, on boys specifically isn't as well studied, which is part of the problem. Because there aren't we, any boy teachers. Yes. And then you and then you get to black male teachers well, and there's even fewer. Yeah. Well, the, the and that's where I'm going with this is if you look at the research on, you know, black um, teachers, not even male teachers, although it's a stronger effect with males. If you look at the effect of race, it's signif. It's been studied uh, robustly, and it's very significant. And the reason is, and it's pretty simple, and it makes sense, is that when you're growing up, when you see someone who instantly you can relate to a little bit more. I'm not saying that you know we can't relate to others of different races or sexes or what have you, but we know this. If I'm a boy growing up, like and I see a male doing something like there's a little bit more of that, like, Hey, this is a role model, or this is like someone I want to emulate. It's why generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, you know, you look at, at role models or who you want to be. And it's um, often someone of the same gender, not always, but anyways, what you see there is if we don't have that experience, you get kind of narrowed and trapped. And this happens all the time in elementary school, and this is where we have to bring in a little bit of that culture is if you don't see a male teacher or a female astronaut or whatever have you, then your brain doesn't go to, oh, I could be that person or, oh, I connect with that. And we've done a really good job over the past 20 or so years, like giving female examples in STEM fields of, hey, this is why you can be a scientist or engineer or code, do coding, et cetera. We've done a better job of doing that. But for men in fields like teaching, health-related, in terms of nursing, 
just generally dominated fields by women, we haven't done a good job of that. And I think that's where it gets to teaching is like, we have to do a better job. And Reeves does, uh, uh, you know, outlines this wonderfully is we have to give people more role models and seeing yourself in others that allows you to kind of expand and connect and um, improve your, your performance over the long haul. So just because you brought up nursing, um, there's this quote that is just devastating from Florence Nightingale, who is one of the um, matriarchs of modern nursing. And um, nursing programs are named after her. I'm sure there are awards named after her. And for a lot of good reason, she did a lot to modernize nursing and make nursing a profession and um, a well-respected and deservedly well-respected one at that. And yet Florence Nightingale said that she opposes men in the profession on the grounds that, and I quote, their hard and horny hands are not suited to touch, bathe, and dress wounded limbs, however gentle their hearts may be. So that kind of bias is baked in from the mother of modern nursing. Now imagine the opposite. If someone said something as discriminatory against women, in engineering. Would we be naming buildings after that person? No, that person would be canceled. We would be taking the name of the buildings down and rightfully so perhaps. But again, this, this can't just run in one direction. So I want to read one more quote from this time from Richard Reeves himself, who wrote this, this book of boys and men, which I think really kind of summarizes the problem that we're trying to discuss and then, Steve, since since we're going pretty deep on this topic, how do you feel about taking this up in a part two next week, the solutions to this problem? Okay, because I want to be mindful of listeners' time, and I, I want people to wrap their head around this problem and just have some time to reflect on it before we dive into solutions. Because like I said, this book blew my mind because I was still under the impression that men have it pretty easy and, um, and if anything, we still need to be working for women's rights, which I think is still true. Like we can work for both, but I just didn't understand how severe the gap was beyond, you know, the top one to 2% of the economy. So Richard Reeves says, the reason that we're not making progress on this issue is because both political sides have dug into an ideological position that inhibits real change. Progressives refuse to accept that important gender inequalities can run in both directions and quickly label male problems as symptoms of toxic masculinity. Conservatives appear more sensitive to the struggles of boys and men, but only as a justification for turning the clock back and restoring traditional gender roles. The left tells men, be more like your sister. The right says, be more like your father. Neither invocation is helpful. What is needed is a positive vision of masculinity that is compatible with gender equality. I think that sums it up. That's what we, that's what we need to try to create as a society. Yeah. And I think there's a little more, there's two things that pop up to me on that is one is when we talk about, well, where does this come from and what's the, the struggle with, with changing it? is he gets at, we have these societal master narratives around what manhood's masculinity, et cetera, are. 
And I think what he's getting at is that our societal master narratives, like, might have worked well in the 1950s. For men, not for women. Yeah, that's what I mean. For men, it might have worked well for the 1950s. And the women master narrative didn't. So what did we do? We changed the women's master narrative and updated it and said, hey, like, you also can get fulfilled and belonging and significance and meaning through work and other and sport and other things we traditionally limited you in. But we haven't updated the men's master narrative and it's still stuck in the 1950s of uh, manhood, masculinity, providers, etc. Well, at the same time holding, and I believe Reeves would agree with this, updating our, our, our master narrative while at the same time holding that there are some biological and psychological differences that mean that some of the things that we need to fill on that void aren't going to be the same as what we had to do with women in, in doing that. And there is, again, this is where there's nuance, not all men, but there are certain biological and psychological biases that might mean that men need a little bit more focus on maybe that, like, you know, men traditionally have looked at provider and protector. So how do we fill that gap in society? And if you look historically, like, even when the master narratives were what they were, you know, uh, society has used sports and games and competitions to fill some of that, like, um, that need, we'll call it, that psychological need in men uh, more so than women, but that that we just have to kind of acknowledge. So I'm going to come back to, as we wrestle with this idea, it really is holding like two thoughts at once or having a yes and, which can mean that, you know, yes, we need to still worry about women and equality and equity and certain issues and certain things and keep moving forward. But we also have to address the problem that has been simmering in the background, which is that a lot of men feel lost, insignificant, like they don't belong or have a place to belong, like they don't have that purpose. And when we have all of those, as Brad outlined at the beginning, or as others like Eric Fromm, have outlined before, when we don't have all those, that void is going to be filled somewhere. And often that void is filled with stuff that isn't good. Yeah. And, and, and then maybe one more thing in, in closing for today, and then we'll pick up next week with with a part two of this conversation. I'm glad that we're going to give ourselves space to to continue to, to talk this one out because there is a lot of nuance. I think that... Um, the political right, the patriarchy still stands strong and men are oppressed by that. And what I mean by that is the political right says, yeah, if you're a man, you know, you should be the primary breadwinner and you should do sports. And um, if you don't do these things, then there's no role for you in society. So it's a zero sum game between you and women and you better do these things. And I'm, I'm embellishing, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a character to, to prove a point. And I think men get really hurt by that because it doesn't expand the complexity of what it can mean to have a full masculinity in one's life. Whereas on the left, I think they say, oh, none of that matters. Men don't need sports. Men don't need to feel like they protect and belong. 
like there's no difference between men and women or the differences are, 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 are really just a, a, a cultural social thing. There's no biology involved. And then men get trapped by that. So I think both of these things are wrong. And I do think that's why this conversation is even hard for us to talk about. And it's why we sound like a broken record because you can very quickly go too far in either direction. My guess is just as many men are trapped by the insistence on one end of the political spectrum that they have to adhere to traditional gender roles. And just as many are feel trapped by the other end, which say that if you adhere to traditional gender roles, it's a function of toxic masculinity. And I think both of those things are wrong. Biology matters between the sex of men and women. Gender is separate from sex, but the sex of men and women, biology matters. And given that most people identify with the same gender as their sex, when we talk on average, society, biology matters when we talk about differences between those that identify as men and those that identify as women is the first thing. And if it didn't matter, to my point, well, then we wouldn't be using all these biological uh, treatments to help people grow into who they really are in the trans community. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either biology matters or it doesn't. Number two, both sides mess this up. So what we are going to try to do next week is wade into the murky waters or wade deeper into the murky waters um, to discuss some potential solutions. We'll continue to draw on this just wonderful book of Boys and Men by Richard Reeves. This whole conversation is a testament to this book. So we highly recommend that if you found this conversation um, interesting, you check out the book, you listen to it. I think you'll come back to our next conversation even more informed. Or if you don't want to do that and you found this conversation a little bit triggering, I would sit with why that's the case too. Uh, And with that, we hope to see you next week for part two.